Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. So last time around, we talked about how Prince used technology to make amazing music and to talk to his fans. There was an interesting theme that emerged, which was whether we were talking about the way Prince used drum machines on albums like 1999 and Purple Rain, or the way that Prince connected with his fans online, the common thread here was that Prince was extremely savvy when it came to technology. But he always engaged with technology strictly on his own terms. That really sets up where we're going on this episode. You might know uh, just recently Prince's memoir was released. This is a posthumous memoir, but it, it, it was something he was working on before he passed. Dan Pippenbring, who edited it, does a really good job of capturing stories about Prince's early life. And it's, it's very moving and, and very touching as a glimpse at that. But interestingly, Dan also captured notes from his conversations with Prince around the time. And those are very focused on a very straightforward message, which is that Prince wanted everyone to create, especially black creators, and he wanted everyone to own what they create. So that idea of artistic control was probably the most key message Prince wanted to get out in the world other than his music. He fought for 20 years to get ownership of his music, his master recordings, the original work of art. And at the end of that 20-year battle, he won. Looking at it through that lens, and from my seat where I said as the CEO of a tech company, he really was a technological pioneer. We don't think of Prince as a guy sitting in basically an office park in a suburb in Minnesota at his computer, reflecting on how a multi-billion dollar industry would evolve. But that is absolutely one of the aspects of his career and his life. He had a vision 20 years ago that ended up being dead on. So this time around in Function, we are going to get deep with two of the people who did the most to help Prince achieve that vision. First up, we're going to talk to somebody who helped make possible Prince's recent memoir. But she had been working on a much larger, much more important project with Prince for years earlier. And that was him getting back ownership of his music. And for the very first time, Phaedra Ellis Lampkins who was Prince's business manager at the time when he got back ownership of his master recordings, has agreed to talk publicly about the work she did with Prince. Phaedra, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Tell me, how do you end up working with Prince? So we both had a friend in common, Van Jones, and um, Prince had long been in a, a battle with his masters. And I'd met Prince a couple of times through Van, and Van had kind of said, if you want to get something done, you should work with Phaedra. Um, at the time, I was pregnant, so I was on maternity leave. Van said, I think Phaedra should go to these meetings, and Prince's lawyer had been negotiating with um, Warner Brothers. And so that's like my – I'd met him a couple times, and then I just ended up at a meeting with Warner Brothers with his <laughs> lawyer and Van. <laughs> that seems like a pretty extraordinary start. It was extraordinary. It's like be at a meeting and learn what the difference between a master recording is and a publishing in the meeting you're negotiating is hysterical. And for people who don't know, the master recordings are the, the sort of definitive recordings of a record, and, and they are the fundamental intellectual property that a lot of, you know, at least old-style recording contracts were about. And you hadn't been in the music industry in that Never. way before. Prince and I connected because I had a strong sense of social justice. I'd spent a lot of my life focused on changing the world in a positive way for people of color and low-income people. And I think he felt like the things he was in the middle of a battle for were about those principles of justice, of dignity, of respect. And so he felt like we got it at that level. And he was able to explain to me how these issues were basic dignity and human rights issues and how artists of color especially were being exploited. So I want to share a little bit of the perspective of what we saw as fans, because I was deep in that community, especially the online community. You know, back in the 90s, Prince had changed his name to a symbol and really embraced the internet. And we talk about a lot of that and had very put it in very stark terms uh, that his battle with his record label was about ownership of his masters and ultimately control of his career. And his framing was, uh, if you don't own your masters, then your masters own you. And at the time when he does this, he writes slave on the side of his face, which is a not very subtle uh, statement of his feelings about the relationship with the label, and begins this battle that by the time you connected with him had been going on for almost 20 years. Sometimes when you're in a fight, you're in a principled place. And I think it's important that he was at a principled place, which I think very few people have sometimes have the luxury of getting to. But he was in a place where more than in some ways money, more than 
Um, other things mattered. He principally wanted to win because it was a fight for justice he'd been in, and he understood the implications not just for him but for other artists and artists of color. So when he was fighting, it wasn't just – I mean, he was fighting for himself. He felt like he was uh, fighting for George Clinton. He felt like he was fighting for other artists, that he was very clear that his uh, liberation would be liberation for others. And and the thing is, I think I think he thought a lot about that sort of historical context. This was in a tradition of hundreds of years of black artists being exploited, and in a tradition of the people he'd grown up listening to, George Clinton absolutely being one of them. And George had for a while been signed to Prince's label, Paisley Park, uh, and obviously, you know, was a huge influence on on Prince's career. But you also had, you know, Aretha Franklin had her own record label back in the sixties and seventies, and and James Brown had experimented with how to release his records. Or certainly uh, Barry Gordy, whose son would end up running Paisley Park on the business side for a while, had all been sort of these huge influences on on Prince's thinking about ownership, particularly in the context of of being a black artist. Absolutely. The thing I think about him that that must be so uh, a challenge to be is he was so brilliant as a musician at the same time as a business person. And sometimes those forces are opposed. And so, like, as you think about making a smart decision for your music, it's very different than the smart business decision sometimes. And it was always interesting to see, you know, to be so smart at both things. And sometimes the the decisions, it was clear he sometimes made a decision as a musician, he sometimes made a decision as a business person, and sometimes he made it at that the cross of both. So I want to get into one of those decisions that from the outside – I think I got because I had been in business and certainly been in, like in software, you think about intellectual property all the time, but that fans were mystified by. And it was his adamant, like stubborn, bullheaded views on taking down his content on YouTube and on other services online. And I want to be fair to sort of, you know, representing both sides. I think a lot of fans were like, you're hurting your legacy and you're hurting new audience, new listeners, like especially younger listeners ability to discover your work because it's not on YouTube. It's not in the places they'd expect to find you. And my understanding was if he looked at something like YouTube, it was, and which Google owns, you have Google is this huge company, one of the biggest companies in the world. So if one of the biggest companies in the world saying, we're going to put your work that you created, wrote, performed, own, we're going to put it up on our site and we will pay you for it. But exactly what we're going to pay you, we're going to just make up. You have no way to negotiate it. And you'll find out after the fact that your work is on our platform. And he's like, no, thank you. Does that match what your impression was? Yeah, a little bit. I think also what was hard is like he thought of it as a very purposeful strategy for record labels and technology to devalue content, right? It wasn't like it just was a business decision. So like if you looked at the statutory rates or the rates that people were being paid on radio versus the rates that they were being paid on something like streaming or YouTube, it was so much loyaler. So one is the way they presented the content because someone could manipulate it. And he was an artist who wanted his music presented in a very specific way. So you might have someone, I remember like uh, dancing nude or disrespecting a woman. And that was not how he wanted his music to be heard or those images to be connected. So one is the way it was presented was different than it was intended and different than the intention of his art. Second, as a business person, it was now something that he you already had a split because he owned his publishing, so he had 50% of it, and then he had a percentage off of the master recording. But now you had, in the places like streaming and YouTube, you now had record companies who'd renegotiated different rates, right? So a record company might get more, or a label, music label, might get more money than they would have gotten off a radio performance. And so, or they had different incentive bases. And so it was the presentation of the content. It was the fact that they'd structured a deal around the artists. um, And that he actually felt like we, when we talked with YouTube or others, it was like he could negotiate a deal. And then they went from like, it's just content. Then YouTube was going to do radio and he could negotiate specific deals, but he was clear that it was only him that could negotiate those deals. You know, he's talking about his ability to, understand the terms of the contract and how he's being paid and what the royalty rates are and how they defer, that there was this huge evolution music went through in a very short period of time between uh, recorded music on, you know, vinyl and then cassettes and then CDs on to into digital. But then there's different eras there between um, digital downloads versus streaming and digital radio and all these kinds of different evolutions. Did he have that level of fluency where he knew all that the 
different terms and how all the different streaming services worked and what the different rates were and what his different legal relationship was to all of them? I think yes and no. Yes, in that sometimes he understood the most minor detail and no, and that sometimes he didn't he didn't have as much um, information about the way that that some of the relationships were working. One thing that struck me when I started working with him is I said, okay, look, I um, we'd been in this meeting and they were going over a contract and I went through like each piece of the contract with him and he found it really frustrating and he would get irritated with me, but it was it was really his property and, and the, the thing of most value to him personally and professionally. You know, he'd been obviously an artist for so long, had so many resources and been famous that I don't think he'd been engaged in the transactional level of some decisions that had great impact for him. And he was clear on this. I think he's publicly talked about this, that that he felt like he had not he'd been mistreated or, or misrepresented because he didn't know the details of some of those things. There's a letter that he wrote right after he changed his name to a symbol and he'd put it up on the website, his first website, which was called thedawn.com. And it, it was briefly up there and he took it down. I mean, it's sort of classic prints, right? It's like, I'm going to put this elliptical message up there for a short while and then disappear it. But it was the most direct thing he'd ever written to that point. This is in 1995 or so. And he sort of said, "This I signed this contract when I was 17 and I didn't know what it meant. And it's the first time I'd ever seen him say anything that was short of being sort of sort of the all-knowing eye. You know what I mean? It was this, it was this thing where he's like this, this very human, very vulnerable very understandable, but flawed thing, which is like, yeah, when I was 17, I was a dumbass. And and that was really striking because it was a sense of like, he did get exploited. And it makes perfect sense that if you have a kid who grew up where he did, how he did, and you have somebody saying, I'm here from Warner Brothers. You're like, yeah, hell yeah, I want to take that deal. I think, and you think about that at 17 and I think as you get older, you think the victory is in money, right? So I think a lot of musicians would say or artists that I, I met working with him is that people would take cash, big cash payments because they thought that's what was critical, right? Like now as you evolve, now I should be getting more of the money. And it's, it's only later when you realize, well, I just took all this cash and now I don't actually own what the cash is being made off of. And so I think, I think that became much more clear. And I think he was when when I worked with him, he, you know, obviously let go of a lot of people. And part of why he let go of people is because he no longer didn't want to know the details of what was going on. And I remember him calling, like, we, he and I had a conversation. So then he called the president of ASCAP. And I think for him, it was very empowering to be in control of himself and his career. And I think he'd always obviously musically, and I think he'd made these amazing decisions. But like, I don't know that I ever saw him more powerful or in his own power than when he was calling the owner of Warner Brother Records, not the president, but the owner, and are calling the head of ASCAP. And, you know, he found incredible personal power in advocating for himself. And and the one thing, I, the thing that I always hope that people know is that getting his master's was about him. He did things that every person that I watched that he had hired in the beginning, he fired them because they would say to him, don't do that. Part of how he built power is he had to be able to make decisions around his publishing. And everyone said, you have to be represented at the time he was represented by Universal. And he said, no, I'm going to do it myself. And no one understood, right? Now, we we understood because it was about power, right? If he didn't have Universal representing him, then he controlled it and he could do whatever he wanted. His business folks said, oh, you're going to lose resources. But, but practically, it was about ownership and it was about control and the fact that he then could self-determine and he could make decisions. And he felt like if I make a bad decision, I want it now to be my bad decisions. I live with the consequences. No one else lives with the consequences. So that's so extraordinary because I think there are a couple places where he had that power and really deployed it. And, and as you talk about, you know, ASCAP, obviously, you know, the biggest publishers in the world, uh, Warner Brothers, one of the biggest record labels in the world, but he would do a tour and he would talk to the CEO of Ticketmaster or he would talk to the CEO of AEG as a tour promoter. The thing it calls to mind, you know, being in tech is a Steve Jobs, is someone like that, where, you know, what what he did over many, many years at Apple in addition to, you know, you invent the iPhone or whatever, is this, uh, we're going to make the chips and we're going to make, we're going to own the factory. We're going to go all the way down to the metal. You know what I mean? Like we're going to own every single part of this. And it was sort of the same thing, which is this, if we control this, we control our destiny. Our computer's not going to be slow because some other company makes a slow chip, you know? And I, I think it's sort of the same thing, which is like all of a sudden he could look at other things to do in the ecosystem 
I'm curious if, if this is something that ever intersected with you. Are there so many sort of uh, side project or ideas that he would explore, like um, funk band, sort of similar to rock band, the video game where he was going to license his music to be able to play it on the instruments? And of course, that didn't ever come together. But but that kind of thing or the eventual deal that he did with Tidal for putting a, a, a pretty large number of his albums from his catalog on their service, these were all things that he had a lot more flexibility to do because he had fought for that ownership. Yeah, I think you're right in that he had so many brilliant ideas. I used to always try to convince him to hire professionals to execute on each one of them. And often he would not want to do that. But he, I think he had every brilliant idea I've seen executed in Silicon Valley years before. And I remember thinking we were smart. Like, I think all these things you think, let's try selling it direct. And he's like, NPG Music Club. And I was like, what's that? And he was like, I did that 20 years ago. We did, yeah. you know, and then he walked he received through. from 20 years ago, yeah. Right, he's yeah. like, there's nothing that we were like, oh, you could do this. And he wasn't like, uh, this is how I did it. And to me, the hard part is because he was so brilliant, he wanted to do all of the pieces of it. And, and so it's hard though, like you have to hire some folks to do some of those things. There were so many incredible ideas that he had, I think, you know, far before anyone else had thought about him. That, that's something that I think comes up a lot, which is he had these ideas early and there was an interesting sort of thing where like his level of professionalism and discipline on music was just off the charts, right? So like in terms of like you practice every day, you rehearse, you master your instrument, you know your shit, right? You know your stuff. And then when it came to like, here's how we're going to do something on the internet. And I, it, it, in fairness, like I've talked to many of the people who did this work and they are brilliant technologists and have become very talented. But at the time, he would take people who would come in as a photographer and say, we want you to design album covers or somebody who'd come in to be an engineer and say, I want you to get me onto the internet. Or me, sound checking. He had me sound check in Baltimore. He fired the whole crew. He's like, they're not doing a good job. Phaedra, go sound check. I was like, I don't know how to sound check. He's like, just do it. You'll be fine. And I was like, no, no, I really don't know how to sound check. And then afterwards, he said, you did not do a good job on sound check. And I was like, shocking. I did not <laughs> sound check well. So I, I want to touch on a couple of points real quick, one of which is that sort of idea of what I've described as his battle with the record label is actually a battle for really just self-respect and, and, and an equitable relationship. And I think about... One of the earliest songs he recorded, he'd come to New York as a teenager when he was in the midst of sort of figuring out his first record label contract. Uh, it was called We Can Work It Out. And in it, he says, WB and me, naturally. He's singing about his record label. And... It's kind of the sweetest thing ever is this teenage kid. And I, I think what might have been his first trip to New York, but certainly one of his earliest trips to New York. And it honestly sounds like he's daydreaming. Like I'm going to be on the label that Shaka Khan is on. You know, like I'm going to be, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be this thing, you know, and then it happens, right? Of course, like he becomes basically the biggest star in the label by less than a decade later. And then you get to the early nineties and he's, you know, having this reckoning of like, am I going to stay a star basically? And he signs a big contract. And this was an era of big contracts. So, you know, Whitney had a record-breaking contract. And then Michael Jackson got like a $60 million contract. And Janet gets a $70 million contract with Virgin. And it's clear there's an arms race going on. And he does this deal that the headlines, and I remember reading it at the time, Rolling Stone was like, $100 million deal. And the wildest part about it was this press release said, and Prince will become a vice president at Warner Brothers. I think about this a lot in some ways, the way that tech companies have created stock options, right? It's like you think like I'm an early person in this company. I own 1% of the company or 2%. Imagine if you feel like you're the greatest artist that's ever been on that label and you've sold more than anyone else and they continue to make money off of you. You feel like that's partly your company too. I remember he once sent me a list of their um, roster and then he told me who should be kept and who should go. <laughs> Wow. And he wow. wanted me so to have a So he was doing a, an AR for the label too. Right. He wanted me to have a conversation with the, the man who runs Warner Brothers and to tell him that two to let go. And I think he <laughs> uh he also Did he make some good calls though? I think he made some good calls. I think he sometimes made calls that weren't about selling music, but were about like authenticity of experience. 
And so I don't know that from a business perspective, they were always great calls. But he like he wanted to be at that level of engagement of defining like who was on the label, like because he felt like he built it, you know, like what should it become? Um, what should it look like? And so that was really important for him. I thought he wanted to get his master's so that he could not have a relationship with Warner Brothers. The most surprising thing to me was he didn't want to be disconnected from Warner Brothers. He wanted to have power in the relationship. And so like in the beginning, I thought the goal was like, get all your masters and run away from Warner and then have power that way. What was really interesting to me is like, I remember him saying like he wanted an office at Warner Brothers. His vision for freedom, which is his journey, so it's always his vision that wins, was, you know, about respect. It wasn't about separation. That was probably the most interesting thing to me because he felt like they were only successful because of him. So his goal wasn't to leave it. It was to shepherd it to greater success. Hmm. Well, I want to leave with one last question here, which is obviously it's been it's been really tragic and painful to have lost him, you know, unexpectedly. But what happened in 2014 was that he did get ownership of those master recordings. And it was a full 20-year battle um, for ownership of that work since he had first written Slave on his face and basically burned down his career 10 years after being the biggest, one of the biggest stars in the world. You know, I'm curious if you feel like, was that almost a valedictory moment for him? Do you think Prince got what he wanted for his work, for his career? Like, did he win? Yeah, I mean, he called someone, a friend we had in common, and said, what's something Phaedra's always wanted for the rest of her, like, for her life? I want to give that to her since I've gotten what I wanted. And so... It was clear to me that watching him, that in some ways it's like it's something that he had always wanted. The thing that became more clear is I I think as he had some of the things he'd always wanted, you start to realize, what would I have done with it sooner? Should I have gotten what the way we got it differently? Should we have how what should our relationship have been with Warner? And so I think in that moment, I and and what he described to me as a happiness he hadn't had in a long, long time or experienced before. And so I think for him, it was that um, in that moment. I think as time goes on, you start to think, oh, what what could I have done differently or what does it look like? I mean, we were sitting in, um, he and a couple other folks were sitting in a room and he, which is when you know he's happy, is he calls you at in the middle of the night and wants you to come hang out. He rented the club in the Beverly Hills Hotel and he wanted to, I don't remember if it was an eclipse or something was happening, but he was like, let's just sit here and talk about it. And so- he was liberated and happy and was very clear and and felt like it was a victory for for everyone. Um, I'm a normally pretty private person. I think this is only the second thing that I've done to ever talk about him. I remember the thing that describes who he's best is he was saying privately like reparations and like <laughs> like this is the like this is but publicly that was the context right? of it. It's for like him he felt much. like it was reparations, but publicly he wanted to be graceful. He wanted to make a deal with them. He wanted to do another album with them. And that's, I think, the spirit is he he was complex and hard sometimes, but always amazing. And I always think about the fact that in his heart, he felt like he got reparations, but he didn't want to be seen as like running around with a victory claiming reparations. He wanted to also give them a win. And I just think that's who he was. There's a, a bit of a graciousness in an artistry to even how he basically accomplished the greatest professional achievement yeah. of his career. It was definitely. And, and for him, it was like the part that you all don't see is like, you know, he was like, uh, you know, the ability to audit or figure out what it was owed. Like he wanted to know how many albums actually sold a Purple Rain. Like I didn't get that information. And there was like, we did an audit. And there's just all this stuff, some of which was under a confidentiality agreement. But there was incredible victories that some of which you can't even see. Phaedra, thank you for sharing this story with us. Absolutely. Last time around on Function, we talked about all the ways that Prince used technology and the internet to connect to his fans. But one of the most amazing was he built an online music club called the NPG Music Club, and it was a subscription service. We got music and all the stuff you'd expect, but at its height, it actually did things like getting us into sound checks. One time, I got to sit a couple rows in front of Prince at his own show, thanks to being a member of this club. After the break, we'll talk to the designer and creator who helped Prince build that online community, Sam Jennings.
Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So, I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox, to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. I'm going to real quick take you back to 2002. Now, I was already a Prince fan, of course, but he had started to launch a series of websites in the 90s, and I'd become a member of this online music club. Now, the thing to keep in mind is these had started before there was any iTunes, way before there's any Spotify. There's certainly no Patreon or anything like that. So we weren't used to even the idea of just downloading music or watching videos online, but it was exciting to get access to that. And then in 2002, there was something new that had happened that nobody had ever seen before. We were able to buy tickets through Prince's Fan Club website. It was called the MPG Music Club. And what the site said was if you bought your ticket to the concert this way, you would also get access to the sound check. That's the rehearsal before the show where a band would tune up or try out new songs, or in Prince's case, sometimes even write new songs. It was pretty amazing access. The sound check was so intimate that Prince actually sat down with us as fans. There was only a couple dozen of us. He had a wireless microphone. So even though his band was on stage, he was sitting with us and he was talking to people, greeting them, just like a regular person, not like a global superstar. And the most amazing thing about us was that he told us in that moment, the reason that he gave us access only and exclusively to the people who are the members of this online music club was because he saw the members of that club as his family. It was exciting to see Prince be so groundbreaking in technology just as you've been in music. And part of what was so exciting for me as an internet geek and somebody who built websites and all that was that I knew one of the people who'd made this possible for Prince had been a fellow fan. You see, Sam Jennings had started out as just another one of us in the online community. But over the course of nearly a decade, Sam worked with Prince to create more and more elaborate and innovative websites, culminating with that Webby award-winning site that had let us get access to that soundcheck and to that special moment with Prince. Sam, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So put us in the room. Tell us about the creative process of working with Prince on creating a project. Prince was, uh, you know, he was one of those musicians who, who cared a lot about his, his visual presence and put a lot of thought into how he was represented. So, you know, as a visual designer for him, I kind of got the sense sometimes that, like, if he knew Photoshop, I'd be out of a job. Because, uh, he, you know, he really liked being a part of that. He really wanted to be able to get in there and mess around with things. So there were a lot of times, there were a lot of situations where I'm working on the computer and he's right there with me, um, kind of helping me make decisions, pointing out what if we tried this, what if we tried that, looking at fonts, saying that works, that doesn't work. And I found that he he had very strong opinions. Like he wasn't, you know, sometimes he was a little more casual, but oftentimes he had very direct ideas like, mm, no, I like that. Or that definitely doesn't work. Take me to the like sort of mid late nineties. What were you doing online? So just like you, uh, when I first got online, I started looking around for Prince fans too. I uh, was in college in the nineties and the internet was just becoming a thing. Like it was just becoming this thing everyone was talking about. And being in college was a really great for me because it gave me an opportunity to really learn it, be around people who are also trying to figure it out and coming at it from an artist perspective, like how do we use this as an art tool? How do we use this as a design tool? 
And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of took my knowledge and took my energy and started applying it to like, well, let's figure out where the Prince community is, where the, where are the Prince fans online and building websites and reaching out to people. I was in Chicago. So reaching out to other Chicago fans and starting organizing parties and, uh, you know, saying, Hey, like we're all, we're all meeting online. Let's meet up in person and like talk about this thing uh, that we're into together and just kind of building community. That's really what it was about and making those connections. And Chicago was always one of the biggest fandoms for Prince. I mean, that was a city he loved and he went to a lot, but also the fans were always like kind of real hardcore. And I remember seeing sort of flyers. There'd be like Sam Nation events and people would get together at a club and listen to the music or just hang out. Yeah. You know, I started doing parties in my loft uh, and just inviting people over to my house. And then I got the opportunity to move it to actual nightclubs. So we started doing it in clubs. And I wound up I wound up doing that for about 14 years, which was pretty amazing. But once a month, we'd have these Prince parties. That's incredible. So I want to go back a little bit. So you had gotten online, like a lot of us, you were at college or whatever it was. People had their AOL account back in the day. What was the first place that you connected in? Were you in chat rooms or were you on like they had the internet news groups back then? What, what did you connect in and see those Prince fans on? So the first thing I would connect with is uh, like IRC, IRC chats, um, connect with people that way. And for people who don't know, that was sort of, if today you use Slack or other group chats, things like that, that was that version of that same technology, but back 20 years ago. Right, right. And uh, and also connecting with people on AOL as well. And, and um, you know, the Prince mailing list that would go out, the email mailing list, finding people that way. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of going online chatting and, and just trying to search around and just find those people hiding out. Great. So you become part of the community, you're on the mailing lists and in the chats, you let folks know, hey, I'm, 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 you know, I'm having these loft parties come by, and and then you start making websites online, right? Like you had made like a, a fan site, right? Yeah, for the Chicago group. At that time, you know, this kind of predates like search and and any kind of official site. So, you know, people hungry for Prince content would we'd kind of create these networks where like, oh, have you heard about this site or have you heard about that site? So I wanted to make a you know destination point for people at least in chicago to kind of have a resource to you know share information about when concerts were coming up uh, when things were going to be coming to retail uh you know that kind of thing all right so you are doing these little news updates you're saying you know maybe there's a new single coming out or here's a party that's coming up how do you go from that to getting on prince's radar i would say you know it was really kind of just luck that prince was in this mode of being a do-it-yourself artist at that time. In the mid-90s, he was still kind of reeling from his Warner Brother thing and trying to figure out a way for him as an artist to work outside of the system. He was very dedicated to that. And of course, you know, since the internet was, you know, rising in popularity, becoming more of a thing that everyone was was into, he, you know, he saw that as a great opportunity. And so the people who were also seeing it as a great opportunity, you know, we were almost in a way like in the same circles. Prince was out there in the AOL chat. He was he was talking to fans. He was getting excited about having this connection. And so it wasn't that odd to, to, to find him like kind of reaching out to these same online fans to do projects for him. So the first project being the Crystal Ball website, which I was not a part of, but then also Love for Another, which came after that, which was going to be a charity site for him. And he wanted his fans to be a part of that directly and to build it and work on it and write for it and all those kinds of things. So I, I did get involved in that project just from him reaching out to fans and, and trying to find people to be a part of it. So I want to, I'm going to go back and explain a little bit of context for people that may not be as deep into it as we are, but Crystal Ball was a collection of unreleased songs, things that had been bootlegged and that were from the vault that the Prince had had. And this was a crowdfunded record in 1997. He's like, if I get a hundred thousand people to say they're going to buy this record, like Kickstarter style, then I'm going to make this record. And then it didn't originally have liner notes. He said, my fans are going to make a web page for each song that has all the lyrics. And this was just regular fans, like folks like us that were just around, who they're like, hey, would you go and and I've got a remix I've never released. I'm going to put it out there and you're going to put a, together a lyric page for it. Yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, that alone sounds wild, right? Because he's still, you know, he he changed his name to a symbol and things, but he was <laughs> still a huge star. Yeah, we were only, you know, we're talking about like... Um... 96, 97. So this, this is not that far away from his 80s heyday. 
Mm-hmm. And also he'd had some hits, like he'd had The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. It was like not that long before, a year or two before. So this is something that is kind of wild to see somebody this big a deal reaching out in this way. And then you move on into, he's got a charity website uh, called Love for One Another, which is a charity he actually ran until you know the end of his life. And he is like, this has got to have a website. What I'm going to do is get the fans to all build it with me together. Let me, you know, in our minds, we imagine, you know, the tap on the shoulder, right? You get called in. How did you get the call? Like how, who, what was the mechanism by which you are summoned by Prince? Right. So, you know, being a part of the online community, so, you know, you get to know people like you were mentioning earlier. And uh, when it came time for this project, uh, he kind of tasked a couple people to kind of piece it together, one of them being uh, Kathy Adams. And I knew her and I was uh, familiar with her. And since I was building websites, um, I was one of the people that they approached, hey, would you like to participate in this? So, you know, I think there was a little trial and error at first, but eventually we kind of narrowed it down to a solid group of people. And there wasn't any direct contact with Prince per se. I mean, these were these were entirely done online. So we, we were literally going into message message rooms and having private message chat conversations with like an AOL chat room. Exactly. And, and so it's project managing you making a website for Prince through an AOL chat room. Completely, yes. And so <laughs> there were there were representatives from Paisley Park who it was understood that they had authority to make decisions, but it was never uh, explicitly said like, oh, that's Prince talking to you right now. But you didn't I even think, know who it was. It was sort of just a name on the screen. Right. And, you know, I think from Prince's perspective, he he loved that anonymity. Could have been him, could have been somebody else, but he just loved the fact that he could potentially talk to somebody and not have it be like, oh, it's Prince or, you know, or be held responsible if he said something strange and right. people would run off and be like, oh, Prince said this. Uh, and I think he really liked having that uh, kind of freedom and relaxed atmosphere to just have conversations with us and not have it be like like an interview or something like that. Okay. So, so you're, you're in there. Uh, they, the fans have come together and I remember built a sort of a first version of the site and, you know, by modern standards, it's not the, the current aesthetics that the web has, but it, but it was, it was cool. It was like, this thing exists. And then it starts to sort of mutate and iterate from here is a page describing my charity work into something that starts to be about the music and about his career. How did that evolution happen? You know, again, kind of going back to his fascination with the internet and that connection with his audience that was direct, you know, in a way you could, you, he started to use it in a way like uh, how people use Twitter now. So there wasn't a Twitter, but he, there was a news section. And so he could send a message out to his fans directly from him commenting on a TV show or a concert he saw or something political or the record industry. And he could just put it out in this news section and have his views out there. And again, it wasn't something like a Prince quote. It wasn't like a, a, a Prince interview, but it was a message he could get out there through the website and connect to his fans and connect to his audience. And over time, I think that appeal got to, you know, he kind of warmed up to it and warmed up to it. And he said, well, I can, I can release more music this way and I can do other things directly. I can, I can actually interview other artists through this website and just kind of use it as my playground. I think that having that conduit, uh, you know, initially starting out as a, as a charity site, but then, you know, realizing, oh, I've got this way to communicate directly that I don't have to go through anybody else. And, and of course he really loved that. Mm-hmm. There there weren't really artists using the internet as a playground. There was still that sort of fear and that sort of animosity towards the internet of like, oh, this is going to destroy the music industry. This is going to mm-hmm. ruin ruin artists' livelihood. And and they had one janky official site made by their record label. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something pretty terrible that was basically just an online press kit. So I want to go into, you know, one of the specific things. So you start to build these sites and there, and there were sort of a lot of iterations. There's lots of different versions of it and you're polishing up the graphics and you're making it a little more professional. And and also the, the, the internet itself, the web itself was changing a lot. So new web browsers would come out and you could do new tricks and things. Um, but one of the things, one of the names you mentioned in the mix there was Napster. Right. And so Napster comes out around 99, 2000. And I, I should give some history because there are people listening who won't remember it because they weren't allowed to use it yet or they weren't old enough. But, um, you know, this was revolutionary and it was just really the ability to transfer MP3s. And you could search and say, show me, you know, when doves cry and here's 10 different versions of it that you can go and download. 
but it was the first time people had seen one really just listening to music on the computer, right? So not just like on your disc man or whatever you had back then, but two, that you were going to get this music transferred instantly, that there might be obscurities, rarities, unreleased things, things that weren't legally officially out there in the record store. And so it's sort of, it's almost impossible to overstate what a revolution it was. And this happens at the same moment as Prince is sort of saying, like, how can I use the internet? Had you come into the fold enough at that point that you ever had an interaction or a conversation with Prince about, like, what does this new distribution of technology mean? Definitely. I mean, you know, like I said before, it was pretty top of mind at that time. We're talking, like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. The record uh, industry was definitely reeling from this idea that they didn't control the channels anymore and that people were going to get this music whether they wanted it, whether, whether the record labels wanted them to or not. And so you could approach it with like, oh, that's terrible and we should stop Napster, which is what the record labels did at first. Or you could approach it of like, well, the genie's out of the bottle. How can we use this to our advantage? Like, what, what are the benefits for me as an independent artist? And I think the obvious one is like, well, you know, people are going to Napster because they want music. So if they want music from me, why don't they just come to me and I'll create my own essential Napster, like a download service. Um, you know, that makes more sense to me than trying to sue people or whatever, because, you know, as, as we saw, like Napster goes down, something else just takes its place. And then eventually the record labels just have to give in and start their own digital services at some point down the road. Um, but the, you know, this predates iTunes, this predates all that stuff. So, you know, he's, he's saying like, people want to download my music. There's a demand. Uh, they're going to get it from somewhere. Let's get it. Why don't they get it directly from me? Why, why don't we give them a way to support me directly as an artist? So, so that's amazing. Cause I, I found this quote from, uh, August of 2000, which is very early. I mean, Napster had barely been out a couple months at that point. And there was a statement that had been up on the, on Prince's website at the time from the point of view of the music lover. What's going on can only be viewed as an exciting new development in the history of music. This is Prince talking about Napster in 2000. And then you fast forward maybe six months later, not even much later than that. And Prince releases a single. This is a song called The Work, which I love. It's like a James Brown kind of pastiche. puts out the work on Napster, which I don't think any major artist had done at that point. Right. Yeah, definitely. Were you involved in that? Yeah, we uh, we were in talks with people over at Napster. You know, he would say things like, hey, can you get in contact with so-and-so? And and we would, we would organize these AOL chats, uh, which is kind of funny, but through, you know, assistants or whomever, we would get these people in a chat room. And he would, you know, ask questions and talk about the record industry. And again, he could kind of skirt around with like this may or may not be Prince, but it was him. And he had, he had some genuine curiosity. He wanted to know what, what they thought about this. You know, were they just tech guys who were just kind of messing around or did they actually have kind of loftier visions of what the mu music industry was about? So I want to go forward from there. So he starts to iterate, he starts to experiment and Prince's uh, record label and, and band were called the New Power Generation. And so he he called everything NPG. And he launches a thing called the NPG Music Club. Where did that come from? What do you know about how that sort of concept arrived? So we were we did love one another, and that lasted about a year. And then at the end of that, he said, well, you know, we're going in this direction. I want to... I want to shut down Love One Another at the website, um, and I want to try, I want to create something that's specifically focused to music. We had this interim site, MPG Online LTD, and that went for about a year, and that was that was sort of our sandbox to kind of kick around ideas to lead to the MPG Music Club. And during that time, you know, we had a lot of meetings, we had a lot of discussions, how is this going to shake out, um, what's it going to look like? What can we count on from him as far as like um, what he wants to give out? What can we count on from our partner as far as the technology? How can we create a service that people are going to be into but doesn't totally just, you know, give away the whole 
everything in the vault. Um, you know, these were a lot of questions we had. And when we met with a lot of different people to try and figure it out, and it took about a year to get something going, which led to the MPG Music Club. And part of this, to give context, like the technology is evolving at this point. Like most people, well, there are people who had computers that didn't even have speakers on them, right? There's no smartphones yet. There's no, you know, well, Apple doesn't even release uh, iTunes until 2001. And, and the store doesn't come until later after that, right? So, so this stuff is very, very new. You're extremely cutting edge and being able to even capture a song and put it in a form that people could download. Yeah, and I think that was that was the big challenge is that we were doing something that there really wasn't a blueprint for. And another thing we had to consider too is we, we had an international audience. So we might have a great internet connection in Chicago and Minneapolis, but we were you know trying to reach people who were also in Poland or some other countries that may not have been up to par yet as far as the internet speeds. So for them to download a three and a half meg song, could have been a big ordeal for them. Um, so we had to take that into consideration too. Like we don't want to just make it a completely high-res experience that is going to block out a whole audience that hasn't quite got the internet connection yet. So you 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 were sort of commandeered into now we're going to build basically, you know, Prince's bootleg version of iTunes on your own website from scratch with like, and how big is the team working on this? Um. Pretty much me and whoever our partner was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, a partner, and like the ghost of Prince in a chat room, decide to build iTunes on your own and at a time when he's like can't stop giving the middle finger to the entire record industry. Right. And so tell me about the, the launch of the first version. Was there like, does, does like Prince come out and play your guitar solo and like, there you go, you're up on that. Like, <laughs> how, how, how does that moment happen when the switch gets flipped? Uh, I would say we, you know, we had a little bit of a, a rocky start because our first uh, partner was a company called Techadence, and their idea was to do a downloaded downloaded software piece, essentially a, a player, which was popular at the time. Uh, you know, you had real player and things like that. So the idea was to download a player that would be your conduit and download music and videos, and, and you would access everything through this player. Uh, just unfortunately, though, you know, they're it just wasn't dialed in enough and people were having, it was janky. Yeah, it was janky. I remember I used it. It was janky. And they were like, and I, you know, what was obvious to me being in tech was they were like, they wanted to get Prince so they could be like, look, Prince uses our thing and you should too. And now we're going to be the new iTunes. We're going to be the hot software. Yeah. So, that, so, so they're like, they're trying to get over, but it didn't work. And it was like frustrating to use. So you all are sort of stuck with that for a little bit. And they had some really cool ideas and some really kind of big visions of what could happen. But ultimately, you know, people were just frustrated. So we just said, you know what, guys, we just got to pull the plug and we're just going to go really simple. We're just going to make it a subscription. We're going to make it MP3 downloads and we're just going to do it that way. And we're going to do, you know, monthly editions, which uh, was very successful. That first year was all monthly editions where we were giving out, you know, a very specific amount of music every month and people could count on it. And if you signed up for a whole year, you got more music and plus you got these, um, essentially we call them podcasts now, but essentially these audio shows that Prince was producing at Paisley Park. Again and again, they placed the car before the horse, offering us crumbs from the table when in fact, with no music, there would be no table at all. You are listening to MPG Audio, owned and operated by creators of music. Get a dictionary and some scuba gear, because we're about to get deep. I mean, it was pretty amazing, the amount of content that he gave out that first year. And the wild thing about this is today, you know, a lot of us have, you know, Patreons that we support online, or we go to Bandcamp and we buy somebody's record and we listen to it. Or, you know, you, you check out somebody's SoundCloud and they might have like a membership thing if you want to download a special track. But it's pretty common infrastructure, right? Millions of us, like we get music this way. We connect with, with artists this way. We certainly are like, I paid for the Patreon and got the exclusive to listen to the podcast. That's a mixtape for my favorite artist. That's the thing that exists. Right. 20 years ago, this is mind bending. And especially because it's like Prince, who again, big deal artist. This isn't like... I'm I'm somebody that's just breaking into the the industry, and I hope that somebody's going to support my Patreon for twenty bucks. Right. But I, you know, those those monthly audio shows, the podcasts, where you know he's mixing songs together, he's narrating the thing himself. He is. There were unreleased songs that were in the mix on these things. It was Sunday night. Instead of doing what I usually do, I, I scanned my computer looking for a sight. 
and and they were going out every month. And I mean, that was, and then nobody did it again for like 15 years until just now we've got all this stuff back. (laughs) I think also too, you know, broadband caught up with the rest of the world. So those kind of things. We were all still on dial up then too. Yeah. So obviously podcasts (laughs) work a lot better when you're in a streaming universe than they do with a download universe. I want to talk about sort of the, the, the zenith of this, maybe the apex of this, which is. Um, you'd had a couple iterations of the site. You, you got it working. I don't know how much you can talk about the business aspects, but what did it look like as a subscription business for people signing up? Was, was there a good subscriber base? Was Prince happy? Like there's a lot of fans paying for this? I would I would say that Prince is one of those guys that is never completely happy with uh, numbers. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that applied to his record sales. I think that applied to everything. You know, like if he sold a million records, how come he didn't sell two million? Um, and so, you know, that was, that was sort of an ongoing thing. Um, I think that kind of, that kind of spurred his experimentation, like, okay, well, we did this and it it did whatever. What if we tried it this way? And what if we tried it that way? The subscription sales, I think they were great. I mean, they sustained the business. They, they paid for my salary, which he, he really liked. We also did the pre-sale tickets. So that was another thing that we were doing that hadn't really been established in artist fan clubs yet either, where we were making, especially on the Musicology Tour, we were making tickets available to the fans before anybody else. So if you wanted to get tickets and get the best seats, you had to join our club. So I want to get to maybe the most princely thing about his online explorations and all this innovation, which is that you have in rapid succession two of the most surprising things that happened with all of the technology that he did, but especially with the NPG Music Club, which is uh, one, probably the pinnacle rec- recognition that you got, which is a Webby Award. Talk about that moment, about what it meant to see that work acknowledged and you know what you heard from Prince about that. Yeah, I would say that... For me personally, that was definitely uh, a big high point, Um, you know, because we're doing this thing. I'm working with Prince. um, You know, it's successful. People love it. There's always that kind of feeling of like, well, we could do more. We could have better numbers, et cetera. But then to have the industry, you know, come out and and give us the Webby and also to give Prince a lifetime achievement Webby, which was based on all the things that we'd done over the years, uh, it was it was pretty uh, awesome to have that to have that and to be a part of the ceremony and go there and still have my webby you know all these years later that you know for whatever happened afterwards like I still have I still have that and it was pretty exciting um, and I think for for Prince personally you know he wasn't so crazy about awards it didn't mean a whole lot to him but I think he sort of felt. Well, we won this Webby Award. As far as the internet goes, maybe this is the highest the MPG Music Club is going to achieve. Like, what if there's something else we could do? Again, kind of that restless, always wanting to challenge himself kind of vibe, which was just who he was as an artist. So, you know, he he even said that the night that we won the award, we were sitting um, at Butter, which was a club in New York City, and talk and talking about it, and he's like, "Well, what do you think about maybe shutting the club down now that we've won this award?" And you know, my heart kind of sank because, you know, this is something I'd been a part of for five years, but also the, it paid my salary. And I was like, um, "As long as there's a plan B, <laughs> we, can, I'm okay with it." Um, and we didn't make any decisions that night. But you know, eventually over time, you know, he kind of said, "Well, what if we tried something different? What if we, you know, turned into this kind of thing?" and you know, eventually those plans kind of got sidelined um, and he got really into Vegas and then he went to did the Super Bowl in London. So he got caught up in other projects. And so we never we never quite had that Internet presence um, ever again, which is I think is unfortunate. I think everybody's question for anybody that ever got to collaborate or work with him is like, what was that moment of you two sitting in Paisley Park or in some, you know, some studio somewhere where you had that conversation and got a glimpse into the creative where you were sort of, I, you know, you're at the table with this legend and you're doing this work together. What's, what's the moment that stands out? That's like a story that you, you know, you tell your family, that's like, this is, this is what I got to do. Hmm, right. One that really stands out is when he was, when he was staying at the 3121 house in Los Angeles, uh, he had a guest house and he'd set up one of the guest houses as a music studio. And that's where I had my computer. And, you know, one afternoon we were sitting there and we were working on stuff and I would, I would kind of make playlists to play while he was in there, kind of stuff I thought he would like to hear. And, you know, he says to me like, Hey, you know, um, 
what if you download some music that we listen to? Like, what, what, you know, we were talking about 70s music, and we were talking about, like, Steely Dan and Fleetwood Mac and kind of artists you wouldn't normally expect him to cite his influences. And so we downloaded uh, the first Steely Dan record, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Rumors. We downloaded um, Chicago's, one of their first records, and we just listened to them all the way through. And and just listening to them with him and having him talk about the music and, oh, listen to this part, and he'd get excited about a guitar solo or something like that, and just really kind of break it down and talk about his experiences as a as a high school kid listening to this stuff. Um, you know, it was just really really great. It was just like a very kind of casual, easy moment. We're still working. We're still doing our thing. But just to kind of have that going on simultaneously, that was that was a moment that really stood out. Uh, that's, that's such a wonderful image. And I'm glad you got to have that. I think, you know, one of the things I see as a fan is I was so thankful for that glimpse. Um, you know, us being on the outside, just you love the music, being a fan, whatever. And for me in particular, being in tech, working on the web, knowing how hard it was to be able to download a song online and be like, wow, they, you know, they got it all working. Um, you know, I was so grateful because it was like this glimpse into one, the world of an artist we cared about, but also a glimpse into the future we all knew was coming. We knew this is how we were going to listen to music. We knew this is how we were going to be fans. We knew this is what we wanted to be part of. I, I think that was such a, such a gift. Well, Sam, I'm so grateful for you joining us on Function. And as I said, I'm so grateful as a fan that you opened the doors for us to have access to the work of a genius that we might not have otherwise had. Um, and also the inspiration, you know, for me of like that tech could be an enabler of people's creativity. So thank you for your work and thank you for joining us on Function. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This whole season on Function, we've been talking about trust in the internet and trust in technology. And the funny thing is, I think if you are a global superstar like Prince was, you can't trust a lot of people. It's hard to put yourself out there, especially because he was a very private person and he liked to control his image. But what's interesting is if we look at that message Prince had about ownership, whether it's ownership of music or ownership of your work online, he really did put that into practice for how he engaged with technology. He had all these different websites over the years where he connected with fans directly. But what was less obvious was that he used those to let people in. He used those to build trust with people. And if you look at the course of his career, whether it was uh, someone like Sam Jennings who built all those websites with Prince over the years, or even uh, Prince's second wife, Manuela Testolini, these are people that Prince first connected with online. And that's a pattern that continued all the way through to the end of Prince's life. If we look at the last couple albums and tours that Prince did, things like the album cover artwork were illustrations that he licensed from fans. Even the clothes on his body were based on artwork that fans had created that inspired him. That's something really powerful to think about the idea that collaborative relationships, creative relationships can happen online. And it gets back to the fundamental optimism a lot of us had about technology in the first place. By getting on the internet, we were going to find people that we could share our ideas with or who'd even make our ideas better. I love that Prince was able to discover that he could let people in and even collaborate with them because technology was going to make that possible. And I think it's a great lesson for us that it was especially possible if we started in that idea that we should own and control the way our information and our ideas are shared out in the world. That's it for this episode of Function. If you missed the last part, you'll definitely want to check out part one of our two-part discussion of Prince's use of technology. And check out the episode I did of the podcast Switched on Pop. We took a deep dive into the ways Prince used technology to create his music. That's it for this week on Function. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our glitch producer is Keisha TK Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. And our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to the whole engineering team at Vox and a huge thanks to our team at Glitch. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash, but you should also follow the show at Podcast Function, all one word. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to us right now. And also check out glitch.com function. We've got transcripts for every episode up there, apps, all kinds of stuff to check out about the show. We'll be back next week and we hope you join us then. Thank you.